Welcome to the Dossier Podcast, and today we have an awesome guest, Marie Oaks from the Westphalian News, and she also has a podcast with Lauren Chen of Blaze TV called No Malarkey. I've been following Marie's work for a little bit, and she's been doing a lot of interesting reporting and writing on the situation in Canada since the whole COVID insanity stuff began. Um, in addition to kind of just offering more of a global perspective on this whole phenomenon. Um, Marie is from the United States, but is currently present in Canada. And from what I understand, you're trying to get back to the U.S. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Jordan. Uh, right now, I am in the process of moving back to the United States, you know, talking with my family, not having been able to see them for such extended periods of time because of the border restrictions with the United States and Canada. It's been really hard. So I ultimately made the decision it would be best for me to get back to the United States, especially with some of the things that are going to be continuing in Canada in the next year, two years, who knows how long, but we're going to get into that in your podcast. Yeah, that's what I kind of wanted to start with. Um, by the way, I love the name of Westphalian News because as a you know an international affairs junkie, I think it would be important for a lot of people to kind of Google the Treaty of Westphalia and how it started the entire system of nation states that we lived under and we prospered under for so long. Um, but apparently, you know, this is all kind of coming to an end because we have a virus <laughs> around. But yeah, so the system in Canada is interesting. Um, before we kind of just talked about the provincial structure. And it's interesting that in the United States, we kind of had this problem with the COVID mania that there's very little, uh, there are pockets of opposition. And it seems like in Canada, there's the same ordeal that there, it's not really so much of a, um, you know, the politicians on the federal level that are resisting the edicts, but from what I understand, there's like a breakdown from every province kind of makes its own COVID policy, right? Yeah. So in Canada, it's a little different than the U.S., but also similar where states really have a large you know, role to play in you know, health policy and policies in general. So in Canada, health is a provincial issue, while something like the border, where we're seeing the Canadian federal government, you know, use a lot of its power in restricting travel into Canada and outside of Canada, that's really where the federal government in Canada is implementing its COVID policies because they don't have much jurisdiction in the provincial matters. And that's why we're seeing places like Quebec and Ontario currently still having a lot of restrictions while other places in Canada, like Nova Scotia and um, I think BC currently, they don't have a mask mandate while Quebec, Ontario and a few others still do. Yeah. So do you see like, because it seems like from, from my perspective, like when I'm, when I'm researching like the status in Canada in, in the lockdown areas, it doesn't seem to be there. There's like any for like where you are in Quebec, there doesn't seem to be any formidable opposition, like from the politicians. It's just like the, the right of center party wants the restrictions and the left of center party wants the restrictions. Right. Like I, I don't, and from what I hear that they're, there's like some provinces are sending out because you guys have kind of like a socialized healthcare system. 
that they're telling doctors that they're not allowed to speak up against the uh, recommendations coming from the government bureaucracies? Yeah, so it's, there is this cultural component within Canada that I think a lot of people don't understand if you're not from Canada or you're not really aware of this. You know, Canada is such a different country from the United States in that Canada was essentially founded by British loyalists who fled the United States during the Revolutionary War. And they basically kind of just left these ideals of freedom and independence behind because they were loyal to the old crown. So Canada just has never really harbored these ideas of personal freedom as much as Americans. And it's a really heavily regulated country. I mean, you probably know that Canada has little to no firearms rights and what exists currently are kind of being treaded on by the federal government right now. So we're seeing in a lot of these you know, provinces and at the federal level in Canada, where when the discussion of, say, vaccine passports or restricting one's ability to travel, they don't have much opposition because most Canadians believe in this idea of security over freedoms. Yeah, I was just doing a podcast with um, one of my Australian buddies, and it seems like it's the same kind of attitude throughout the Anglosphere except for in the United States, like that's really the only country where, where citizens have a fundamentally different understanding of the role of government. Um, and, and it seems like you're just majorly outnumbered in Canada right now. And it, it also seems like Canada kind of has a stereotypical reputation, Canadian citizens as just like nice people that are somewhat subservient to government. And I suppose that works right under normal times when the government isn't abusing their authority. But have you seen like attitudes change at all from your perspective? It, like has have people started to doubt that the government actually has your best interests in mind or is it just, or do you see like most of society still as kind of like mindless drones that are too trusting of government? Well, you know, it's different because I do live in Quebec. And so it's really different all over Canada. You know, there's such a division between a place like Quebec versus the rest of Canada, or even like a place like Alberta, because that currently in Canada, I don't know if you know about this, but there is this huge divide of Western Canadians versus Eastern Canadians. Eastern Canadians yeah. are made up of Quebec and Ontario, while the West is really Alberta, Saskatchewan, and all these more oil, kind of like oil country. It's like the Texas of Canada. And there is fundamentally different approaches to how things are being done in both sides of these country. You know, we're seeing in Alberta right now, the provincial government is saying, hey, we're going to start treating COVID more like a flu. They're going to be, you know, loosening their restrictions, you know, stopping quarantining while like I said, Quebec is taking the alternative. They're going more of the route of what France is doing. They're implementing a vaccine passport. They're preventing, you know, unvaccinated people from going to restaurants and all these other excursions, even though in France, the reason that they said they wanted to do the vaccine passport was because there was not enough people vaccinated. Well, this issue doesn't present itself in a place like Quebec. In Quebec, people have gotten the vaccine. It's like over 80% of the population, even 12 year olds and older 
have either one or two dose of the vaccine right now. So it's really being used as a way to punish the unvaccinated. The premier of Quebec even said, you know, unvaccinated people are going to lose privileges and that it's even being framed in the way of a basic, you know, going to a restaurant. That's a privilege. I don't think people really even discuss these type of things like ever in that type of way. It was kind of just like a, I don't even want to call it a basic freedom, just a basic part of life, especially if you live in a place like Quebec, that's kind of like France in the way of like going to restaurants is a daily excursion for most people in this province. Yeah, I find it somewhat entertaining that there's like an east-west divide in Canada and it perfectly lines up with like this Cold War type of ideology where in Ontario and Quebec, you have like these fascist police staters and then Alberta, British Columbia, it's kind of more lax. And what's interesting is that I've actually seen similar to, I don't know if you've seen this, but similar to United States, I see like some Canadians of social media blaming the people at West um, for their, their COVID outbreaks, because they are complaining that there, there's not enough of like a federal equal response and they just want total COVID fascism. Have you seen that at all? That like, that you're kind of seeing that the scape people are being scapegoated in that sense. Oh, totally. I mean, the exact thing is happening in Quebec where they're trying to blame the unvaccinated, but the unvaccinated is such a small portion of the population here where it's like, there's no way they can be blamed. It's so tiny where it's like most people you encounter in Quebec are vaccinated. So it doesn't make sense, but you're also seeing what I was seeing a few months ago when we were in Quebec having 8 PM curfews, you know, you would get $1,500, dollars fine for being outside past 8 p.m. And if you were to walk your dog, you could only be one kilometer away from your house where we knew that these restrictions were not working, but I would time and time again, see these people on you know Facebook in these like groups, these local groups talking about like, I don't care if the restrictions work, it makes me feel better that the government's doing something about it. And I feel like that same sentiment is coming our way with these vaccine passports, when you are, when you have such a vaccinated population, if you believe that the vaccine is really going to be the end all be all, I personally don't believe that's going to be the case. And I think what we're going to be seeing in Quebec in the next couple months is what we're going to see, you know, elsewhere in North America is first is going to be like, okay, we're only locking down unvaccinated people. The cases are going to continue to go up. I mean, we're heading into fall and winter. And then they're going to say, oh, the unvaccinated are having, you know, gatherings, illegal gatherings. So they're going to bring back these curfew type of um, restrictions. This is my belief. It's not for sure, but this is my belief. And then they're going to start cracking down once again on quote unquote, illegal gatherings, going door to door, knocking on people's door, checking people's vaccine passports like we're seeing in France today being done. And then I just think Quebec and the rest of, you know, Canada, at least, I don't know if this will happen in the US, but it's just going to go back into full lockdowns. It's just so unbelievable to see um, like these videos coming out of Toronto and Quebec and just like police patrolling the streets during lockdowns, making sure people are stuck in their homes. And 
I, I know that the, there's like still a super rigorous quarantine policy. Um, and, and it's so sad. And I think that your projections for what's going to happen in Canada, like aren't really, uh, it shouldn't be shocking to people that have been following the situation there. Like it's just been really the fascist, like in that they've, they've used this, they've used the security state to keep people in their bubbles. And this has been going on for so long. I don't think people realize how bad it is, especially Americans. They, they aren't really aware of what, I think Canada is a good example of what can happen in the near future, especially like in lockdown states in the U.S. Um, and I, it's super alarming. And that's why like, I wanted to to talk to you to kind of like raise awareness about because this stuff is already happening in Canada and, and people sadly are just kind of like going along with it. And I don't know about you, like I don't see any reason why people in New York and Canada and California and Chicago and, and elsewhere in these heavy blue areas. Like, I think that this is also the future there as well. Well, I think we need to also bring into the conversation. It's not really Canada wide because the type of restrictions we were seeing the previous year were so different across Canada, which was the even weird, most weird part about it was why was it that certain areas were under 8 p.m. curfew while other areas were basically completely open? You know, a mm-hmm. lot of people just have no idea how bad Quebec was compared to the rest of Canada and compared almost to the rest of North America. I think Quebec was the most locked down place in all of North America. This is my own belief because I don't remember there being curfews anywhere else in North America. And it wasn't like the curfew was only two weeks. It was months on end and it kept changing. The rules were so arbitrary here where like one week it was an 8 p.m. curfew. Then they moved it to 9 p.m. And then they moved it back to 8 p.m. And then they got rid of it. And it was just always arbitrarily changing. And it was the more scary thing about it was in other parts of the country, although they weren't doing curfews, they were putting border checkpoints between provinces, which directly is in violation with the Canadian constitution. For instance, article one of the charter of rights says that freedoms of Canadians are guaranteed also only to such reasonable limits prescribed by the law as can be uh, can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Yeah, but Marie, there's a virus out there. So why do laws matter? We're trying to save lives here, right? <laughs> so it's uh, it's definitely a um, a situation that I've encountered personally, when I have a lot of these debates and discussions about this, these issues, when you talk about individual liberties and guaranteed rights of citizens, I think that they always just kind of pivot to, well, you don't have the right to infect me with, with this virus. So nothing else matters. Yeah, definitely. But I feel like the one thing the U.S. definitely has over Canada is a way strong, like a much stronger constitution, because in Canada, the constitution is very much open to interpretation by the courts. For instance, mm-hmm. part of the constitution guarantees the right of mobility between provinces. So Canadians 
can freely travel through provinces, but we were seeing during the pandemic that there were several provinces setting up border checkpoints. And if you weren't from that province, you were not getting in, or if you didn't have say a test or whatnot. So we are just continuously seeing in Canada, the erosion of people's fundamental freedoms with very little pushback from the courts. I mean, in the United States, we were seeing you know, some courts throughout the country, basically like in Michigan, where they struck down and took away Governor Whitmer's emergency powers. But in Canada, we're not seeing that. Like in Alberta, I'm sure you saw this and your viewers saw this, that there were countless pastors and churches being targeted by the state. They were forcibly closing their uh, church gatherings, not letting them, even if they were just meeting outside in their cars, they were not letting them do that, even though that is obviously a guaranteed right under the Canadian constitution. It was not being upheld, like you said, because of the virus. And I don't know how someone could transmit a virus when someone's in their own car and everyone's in their own cars. It just seemed like a complete overreach. And for some reason, it was just okay. Yeah, when you introduce panic and fear, um, I think we've seen over the last 18 months that most people will just simply comply and even shame their neighbors into complying. And it, it's it's awful what's happened just with humanity in the West in general. But yeah, I think not only does the U.S. have a stronger constitution, but we also have the Second Amendment. And I think that is so critical because federalism, I, I think, is super important brilliant idea that the founders implemented. But if we didn't have the Second Amendment, I, I still think that the government would just come in and steamroll us. And I think that's a huge distinction between the US and Canada, because especially when you have like the Biden administration talking about, oh, we're going to go door to door and like, you know, tell you to take the vaccine if, if you're not on our list. But there is a certain and that's like the whole point of the Second Amendment is to prevent a tyrannical government from appearing and from violating your rights. And I think it provides kind of like a buffer that a lot of Canadian citizens do not have at this point when the government is getting all aggressive and wanting to you know, do all they can supposedly to contain a virus that in the US, you know that your citizens are packing heat, <laughs> a lot of them, especially those who disagree with you. So you might well not want to infringe on their rights too bad. So I think that's one of the main reasons why it's prevented, especially the federal government from intruding in places like Florida and Texas and Arizona, South Dakota, where people can make decisions on their own. Uh, because it seems like, although you have a provincial system where people make their own decisions, it, it seems to me that Canadian society as a whole is still under threat of just being totally turned into a you know, tyrannical state if the government decides that that's the case. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to, I think it's very interesting to see, you know, like on the big pharma side of things, I don't know if you've been following this, but the, the latest numbers on Canada is that the government has ordered over 400 million COVID vaccine shots and Canada has a population, I think under 40 million. So what is, mm -hmm. doesn't that kind of like raise eyebrows a little bit for you? Like what's going on with the Canada's relationship with these big pharmaceutical companies? Uh, why did Canada 
it, it seems that they're, why do they order 400 million doses? Do you have any reason why? Well, at the beginning of the pandemic or when the vaccine rollout was happening in the majority of the Western world, Canada really fell behind. And a large part of that was Canada, instead of investing in, say, the Pfizer vaccine, they actually put all their eggs largely in one basket, and that was China's CanSinko vaccine. And that never made its way to Canada. I'm pretty sure this was a big political blunder for Justin Trudeau's uh, cabinet because I'm pretty sure the, the Chinese government basically took the shipment before it was sent to Canada. So for a long time, Canada like had no vaccines and it was a large part of at least why the government was saying we were under lockdown for longer than we really were supposed to have been. So I think once that happened, Justin Trudeau, they were all kind of freaking out and I think they just ordered way too much and they just tried to secure as many contracts as they could. And I know in Canada's right now, they've been talking about mixing vaccines because they don't have the proper supply to do double dose of, you know, the same vaccine twice. So maybe that's part of it. I'm not really sure because a, a lot of the vaccines they also did order are just sitting on shelves that they don't want to use. They don't want to use the Johnson and Johnson. I largely, I think, stopped using the AstraZeneca. So that might also be part of it. I have no idea why they would order as many as they did unless they're waiting for this booster shot to take place. Yeah, but it, it seems like these. So what's funny is that they've ordered 400 million doses of like the, the, the doses that are supposed to be used for these early variants. And I don't know if you've been following like the data coming out of Israel and some of these European many states, but it seems like the the efficacy numbers that they sold did not really live up to the hype, to put it um, minimally in that sense. And now Canada's in this weird situation where you have like 400 million doses. And now the, the hypothesis now about the boosters is that you need this totally new formula. So I guess Canada's going to have to order some more doses and hopefully those will work. But it is it is interesting because um, there's been a lot of whispers about, uh, especially with the Trudeau government, catering to China. So I'm not surprised to hear that they had ordered all of these doses from China that didn't appear. And that's been the whole uh, theme of China's involvement in this COVID ridiculousness is that they've just acted as a force for destruction for two years and people seem to not want to hold China accountable and it's very sad to see but um so what do you think about the news today that uh vaccinate so there's some breaking news that vaccinated Americans are going to be allowed to drive to Canada again I guess that's that's nice for you because maybe like some friends or relatives will be able to see you again if, if you're stuck in Quebec yeah, actually, because of this, my friend is going to be coming here at the end of the month to help me move back to the United States because my significant other is Canadian and the U.S. is not letting Canadians drive over the border, regardless of vaccination status. If you're a Canadian, you can only fly into the U.S. So while Canada did, you know, loosen some of its restrictions on the border, unfortunately, the United States did not 
you know, be reciprocal in that matter, even though Biden was for months on end saying, Canada, open your your border. Well, now Canada slightly opened their border and the U.S. is like, nope, Delta variant, we're, we're keeping it on lockdown. Canadians, you're too scary. We don't want you. So what's the deal with the Canadian election? Is, is Trudeau going to continue in power under this parliamentary system? Like, what's, what are the current vibes coming out of Canada on that? So right now, Trudeau's liberals are a minority government. And obviously, they would like to go into election as soon as possible and get majority status. However, the opposition parties, namely the New Democratic Party, the NDP, and the Conservative Party of Canada, they're kind of pushing back saying, hey, we don't need to do this. You guys haven't demonstrated a necessary reason as to why we need to go in election. And it's largely because the NDP is broke and the Conservatives have a leader right now that most Conservatives in the country are not too fond of. He's not really lived up to the expectations that people had expected him to live up to. His party has largely not pushed back against the Trudeau government's, you know, kind of assault on free speech and free internet use with uh, Bill C-10 and Bill uh, 36. So if Canada went into an election right now, like the Trudeau government is really hoping for a September election, it is quite possible that the Trudeau government would either remain in minority status or get majority status. So you don't think that Trudeau's position as prime minister is threatened at this moment? It is threatened if there were good opposition leaders, but currently there is really no one to take on Trudeau in a way to boost him out. So this guy, it's uh, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party. If you were to compare him to an American politician, what would be the, the most, the closest parallel for, for him in specifically? Like, is he like a Mitt Romney kind of guy in that sense? Interesting. Um, well, because Canadian politics is way different than the U.S., I would almost put Aaron O'Toole more in the Democrat party because he's very socially liberal. Like he's also, he's a former, um, former air force. Yeah. He was in the air force. Eh, he's not very so, social conservative at all. Uh, let me so see. like an Maybe Adam like, Kinzinger, like a guy that just, yeah, just yeah that would conservatives be in probably. the back. <laughs> Well, yeah, because so the thing with Aaron O'Toole that many conservatives in Canada are upset about during his leadership race, which is kind of like a primary race for the party, he was saying, I'm true blue, which if you don't know, blue is the color for conservatives, red is liberal. So he was saying, I'm true blue. He was really pushing on the, you know, social conservatism those type of ideals during his leadership campaign against a more red Tory, which is more of like a liberal red Tory, Peter McKay. And he won on the true blue, you know, campaign. But once he actually became the leader of the conservative party, he really backpedaled and was a really red Tory. He was very liberal. It was as many Canadians like to say liberal light. So 
I think that's one of his biggest issues. And he hasn't really pushed hard on the lockdowns almost at all. And like I said, hasn't pushed back too much on these uh, censorship bills that the liberals are trying to push in parliament. So I think he's in a very vulnerable place. People don't know him and the people who do know him tend not to like him. Of course, there's going to be those conservatives who are party over anything else type of people. And they'll say they love him just because he's in the party that they like. But right now he's he's doing very bad in the polls and he's doing very bad in his party. Yeah, I suppose that tends to happen when you stand for nothing and get rolled over on every big issue. It, it seems that there's an interesting parallel with, with their shared history that you have the, um, the, the British Tory party seems to be almost identical to the Canadian Tories with how they, it's not clear what they stand for other than bumper sticker slogans claiming that they're for small government and fiscal conservatism and whatnot and markets. But every time like a big situation arises, I, I don't ever see these people having any sort of understanding for supporting individual rights and people's fundamental liberties. Is there a coalition in Canada right now that has political power on a federal level that you would call somewhat equivalent of like a U.S., uh, maybe like a Tea Party or something like a, a more liber, not like a more individual rice based party that actually believes in what they're saying or is it just kind of like this do you think that the parliamentary system is just creating politicians that stand for nothing and just accept the left's premises on everything well there's a lot of parties in canada that's a really big divide from the u.s we have currently in parliament the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the Bloc Québécois, which is more of a separatist type of party for really pursuing the you know, policy agenda of Quebec. And you have the Green Party, which is more like green radicals. They're more, they're, uh, more leftist radical than the NDP. So those are the ones that are currently have power in parliament. They have seats. And then there's a couple independent people who have maybe left one of their parties and they just sit as an independent. Um, a lot of people like to say that the People's Party of Canada, led by Maxine Bernier, has a chance. They might have a chance of winning maybe one seat. It's not really clear. It's going to be really hard, but you, you don't have much power if you only have one seat. So you have to do coalition governments where, you know, right now, because Trudeau is not in a majority government, he has to work with the other parties to get the votes to push certain policy forward. And they really lean on, you know, Bloc Québécois. That's why they do a lot of legislation that would be favorable to Quebec so that they can get their seats or help get some friends in the Green Party or some people in the Conservative Party. So that's primarily why, you know, liberals would want to get a majority government. But going back to just in general, like how the political structure works in Canada, I would say one of the most powerful organizations Canada is the media. The reason there is not so much opposition in my personal opinion to the restrictions and certain things that have gone on time and time again in Canada or you know, going against you know, the political narratives that are very near and dear to Canada, say like supply management or you know, 
fixing the universal healthcare system slightly better than it is currently to make it better is the media is really against these things. And we see time and time again, people like Aaron O'Toole catering to the media. If the media calls him out, he issues apologies. And it's not like he would have done it if the media wasn't calling him out. So I think primarily that's a really big issue in Canada is the power the media has over these politicians where they don't have the guts to stand up to the media. And unlike the US, you know, we have a couple in the US where they receive public funding. In Canada, a lot of the media here receives a lot of public funding. We have the CBC, which is entirely publicly funded, based well, almost entirely inclusion of ads. So we're seeing that. And in a place like Quebec, you know, I want to bring it back to Quebec a lot because it's a really unique place. And it's a place where people speak French and a lot of people only know French. So in a place like Quebec and with what we're seeing with the pandemic response is right now, they've continuously, the government of Quebec has 75% approval rating for how they've handled the pandemic. So it's not like there's oh, a man. bunch of Quebecers who don't like what's been happening. They like it. And the issue with that is Quebecers largely only get their information from French media because they don't know English. They don't have alternative platforms here to read news from. So you're only receiving information your entire life through the lens of the Francophone media here. And the Francophone media here is extremely liberal. They really like Trudeau. Trudeau remains in power largely because Quebec votes for him and it's a really big voting block. It's one of the largest provinces in Canada, like population wise. So the more and more Quebecers are just fed the same narrative, there's not really much opposition to that narrative because there's basically one or two firms like Quebecore that own almost all of the French media. It's basically, it seems to me that it's the equivalent of like a Pravda situation where you have a state media party and independent journalism is in, it increasingly attacked in Canada. Um, I, I don't have you have you personally experienced like this type of censorship in, in that regard? Because I know that like the, the I, I see a lot of stuff with the folks in like rebel media that the, you, they're basically sicking the police on them. And it seems that like the independent journalism you have these journalists are being shamed not only from the by the Canadian government and getting harassed by the police, but it's also other members of the media, kind of similar to how sadly the state of affairs is in the United States, where they make it very difficult for you to do your job and they want to try to like isolate you, right? As much as possible and, and shame you for even discussing some of these topics. Totally. It's really hard when you're in the independent media to get the press credentials you would need to get in order to say even get when Quebec was under a curfew to report on a curfew to be because that was one of the exemptions where if you were media you could go outside past the 8 p.m curfew to report on news happening so if you were not one of those you know known media by the general public good luck getting the credentials you would need or the recognition you would need from the police to not give you a fine. But another interesting and differentiation from Canada at large versus the United States, and I don't think I've ever heard of this in the United States very much, but in Canada, 
a lot of current politicians were also former journalists who worked at these organizations. I don't know a single politician in, in the United States off the top of my head that is a former journalist. I don't know. Do you? Yeah, I think they usually become uh, like assets of the state instead, like with the Biden administration. They don't really, for some reason, become politicians, but there's definitely a lot of communication staffers in the federal government that come right from the corporate press. But that is a very unique situation that because it seems like in Canada, these state broadcasts, as a state broadcaster, you're basically part of the system. And although we have like our NPR and stuff like that, there's nothing that's like quite as influential as the CBC, right? Like the CBC is a behemoth from what I understand. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just the CBC. It's also these other organizations that receive public funding as well, like CTV News and the rest of them. So it's not like it's just the BBC type of situation. It's also that the some of the largest means they receive some sort of subsidy or payment from the government to be able to do their operations because this is a democratic society and we want journalists, but we only want the journalists who we like. So time and time again, you know, when there is a politician that's saying, let's remove funding, like Stephen Harper, they will attack that politician. It'll be horrible coverage. And with Trudeau, we time and time again, see some of the worst stories or type of things coming out about Trudeau it will just be randomly posted on not a really newsworthy day at say 10 PM. That's not generally where you would place your hot topic news, you know, for people who are not very aware of the timing of news. It's really important. If you have a really hot off the press story, you want it up at 6 AM. So that makes the news day. That is the news of the day. If you're placing something at the 10 PM time slot, that's when everyone's going to bed and no one's really going to catch on it. So we're seeing time and time again, the, the really buried leads being buried and they're using, you know, these type of timing or days on the weekend posting these type of stories. Yeah, it's kind of the uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, they kind of follow that similar route where if there's a story that doesn't look good for a Democrat official or some socialist that they like, they'll drop it at like Friday evening. At, at 9 p.m. when everyone is busy doing other things. And it, there's a lot of uh, parallels there. And I, I view these corporate press organizations in the United States basically as state entities at this point. However, I think as like a reason for potential optimism, you can always, with the advent of social media, and for now we're not banned by Twitter just and Facebook and stuff like that just yet. I mean, some people have. But because of this decentralization of information, I think it's become possible for people, despite the corporate press stranglehold and the state press in Canada stranglehold over the dissemination of information, do you see kind of like alternative voices making some headway with influencing people? They definitely can make headway. The issue is there are people within the government who don't want there to be this, you know, grouping of people who do have influence, who, who have a way to break through the mainstream media kind of chokehold on the nation. 
where that's why we're seeing bills like Bill C-10 or Bill C-36 that would really hinder a, you know, independent journalist ability to, you know, post their stories on the internet for websites like the Westphalian Times to be even in existence. Because if there is something that has quote unquote hate speech or uh, something of the sort, the government wants the ability to strike down that website and get it removed off of the internet in a day. And we're not seeing the liberal government. This is still Stephen Gilbo trying to relent from this. They keep further pushing in this direction. And we have here the CRTC, which, you know, regulates basically the airwaves, the television, and they want to be able to also have regulation over Canadians' internet. They want YouTube to put on their homepage what they want, what they call as Canadian like friendly content. So that would obviously hinder an operation like Rebel. We've already seen YouTube kind of go after Rebel and, you know, basically remove their monetization. So Rebels had to use other platforms. And obviously you want to be on the biggest platform being YouTube for if you're doing video content. Mm -hmm. There's no if ands buts about it. It's the sad reality of what we're existing in, but that's a way a lot of people can reach the people who they need to reach. You can go on Rumble, but you're only going to be reaching a smaller pool of people. And if you're not dealing with the United States type of politics, it's going to be even even smaller amount of people who are interested in Canadian content. I mean, it's already such a small country. So we're just seeing the government try to prevent basically these more independent voices from being heard. You know, this really reminds me of the book Manufacturing Consent. So I'm not really sure where a place like Canada is going to move forward. And, you know, something I like to say on my podcast with Lauren Chen, no malarkey is I think this is important. Why people know what is going on in Canada, especially in terms of these censorship type of bills going through the government is these government actors, they talk to one another, these politicians, they're good friends. You know, we're seeing people like Pete Buttigieg. He wants to put a tax on every mile a person drives. Well, that's a policy that they're even discussing in Canada. And Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't think that these politicians discuss their policies and how they're doing it and what is like the public reaction to these things is like ignorant or doesn't know what's going on. These are like good friends. They meet up. These are like the G7 countries. So of course they're exchanging notes. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see in the United States in the coming years, you know, these politicians wanting to put forward these type of internet regulation type of bills we're seeing right now, they're trying to regulate cryptocurrency. You know, that's a, you know, a growth of the internet. Cryptocurrency wouldn't really be a thing without the internet. So I think we're, it's a waiting game at this point of when we're going to see the United States government try to take over parts of the internet. That's such an important, two important points in, in terms of uh, what you said about them kind of sharing notes and policy proposals. There's a reason why all these politicians use, have been using the same language over the last year or so with the Build Back Better and Great Reset and, and all that garbage is that they share kind of the same goals. And I think that's why like, it's important to bring on people um, from my perspective that are elsewhere in the Anglosphere that have kind of like experiencing this 
this turn towards censorship and fascism and whatnot, because this is what's coming for the U.S. if we don't put our you know guard up, as the great Dr. Fauci likes to say. <laughs> but um, yeah, and it's just so it, it's so disheartening to see. But um, you know, I, I hope that you are able to uh, get out of Canada in time because I you know once like the the media party in the state starts. influencing the masses to become more of a totalitarian society. It's just not a good thing. But so to wrap this up, if it's say you're still in Canada and we're having this conversation a year later, do you still see like there being some of these like ridiculous restrictions and what's kind of your, your outlook for Canada over, over the next year? in terms of the, the COVID mania stuff and the censorship, do you think that anything's they're going to, you know, get away from that or are things just going to continue down this like death spiral situation? I think we're going to see, you know, Canada is going to be continuing some of these restrictions. It's really going to be different all throughout Canada. Like right now we're seeing Alberta saying we're going to treat this like the flu. We can't control it completely. So we're just going to have to learn to deal with it. And I think this is going to be an important litmus test for the politicians in Alberta because, you know, they were saying something similar last summer and then they put people back under lockdown. So it's going to be the litmus test to see if a politician can really hold their own against the scrutiny of the media, against their opposition parties, and really not put people through this again. You know, this was really hard on so many provinces across Canada. It was so hard on Canadians. But my outlook for Quebec is it's going to be quite dire. You know, in September, that's when they're going to start rolling out the vaccine passports here domestically. And even Trudeau is talking about maybe having you know, a vaccine passport for travel between Canada and where else in the world. So I think we're going to see Quebec's going to continue down this trajectory. You know, I have so many people when I talk about that I'm moving to the U.S., I have so many Quebecers and Canadians in my mentions saying, how are you doing this? I want to get out of here. And I would say, I hope that Alberta actually will hold up to what they said they're going to do and treat it like the flu, not close things down again, not do the whole lockdown. And I think we're going to see, you know, Quebecers maybe moving to Alberta who can learn English or who already know English if they can't get into the U.S. because Alberta is really standing on their own at this point with the way in which they're doing it. You know, other provinces are loosening their restrictions but alberta saying we're not doing this like at all basically yeah i so wish that florida where i live now had a had a refugee policy for canadians to allow them to come into um our free state because uh well alberta there's plenty of land out in alberta but i i love to be able to be of assistance and have governor DeSantis do something to help out but unfortunately under our system that's pretty much impossible right now We'll see what the future holds. But um, Marie, uh, really appreciate it. You can find her on Twitter at the Marie Oaks, O-A-K-E-S. You can see her work at Westphalia News and podcast, No Malarkey. Thanks so much, Marie. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Jordan.